0: It's episode 104 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is creative strategist, Natalie Nixon. She's the author of the book, The Creativity Leap, and we're going to discuss how we can cultivate curiosity, improv, and intuition in our work and in our collaboration with others. Natalie, thanks so much for being on the program.
1: Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, uh, for people who have listened to this podcast in the past know that Creativity is honestly, it's something that I'm more or less obsessed with. Uh, So it's wonderful to have you here to talk us through kind of your journey and discoveries that led you to all of this.
1: Yeah, so the journey has been lifelong, as for most of us, and I became much more intentional about it in really the past 10 years I, I would say that I aligned with creativity in the more traditional, classic sense. And by that, I mean through the arts mm. growing up. So I studied dance since I was age four. Oh. And my father was a big jazz head. My mom started playing, learning to play the cello when she was age 50, when we were actually long out the house. But she actually studied voice and trained to be an opera singer. So we grew up with classical and jazz and music and all those sorts of things in, in the home. And, and creativity in that sense was always very much um, a core to our childhood and 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 what our our parents encouraged in us. And for me, my entry through dance really I, I dance, even though I I haven't gone on to be a professional dancer. Um dance taught me discipline. It taught mm. me curiosity about people who are different from me. It taught me to love music because music for dancers is kind of the frame to the piece of artwork for a oh, visual artist. Yeah, right. That's great. And it and it it just um it it's, it taught me performance and, and I've carried it through in my life. But in the past 10 years, so 10 years ago I was still an academic. I was a professor. Mm-hmm. And in 2014 I gave a TEDx Philadelphia talk uh about the future of work is jazz. And that catapulted me into being invited into companies and organizations to talk about Well, to help them figure out how they could become more improvisational. And that led to more work, consulting work, to help build cultures of innovation. And then I hit a bit of a wall because, in my opinion, we were starting at the wrong place. Everyone was throwing around the I word to innovate, (laughs) innovate, innovate, right? And in my opinion, we were starting at the wrong place. In my opinion, we actually should be starting with creativity. But then the conundrum was well, how do I go into these corporate halls, these hallowed halls of corporate America, and lead with creativity when, like for so many of us, they are siloing and ghettoizing creativity in the arts? And that began Mm. my journey of really figuring out well, how can I be additive and a contributor to really democratizing creativity, especially for people who don't necessarily assume that they are creative?
0: Oh, that's so interesting. You know, I bet that you're telling the stories of growing up around music and art and things like that. But I bet uh, as a kid, uh, that was just normal, right? Yes. It wasn't until you got out into, quote unquote, the real world that you realized like, oh, wait a minute, this is a thing that not maybe not everybody shares with me.
1: No, exactly. And it's tragic because I, I think for any of us who have children or recall our own childhoods, it's pretty clear to me, that to be human is to be hardwired to be creative. Mm. You know, one of my colleagues and pals, Bob Schwartz, who used to be the head of design for GM healthcare, he's now a professor. He he, he teaches courses in, in design and, and, and business. But he often would quip, you know, if you give any kid four chairs and a blanket, what do we do with it, right? <laughs> we make course. a fort. <laughs> yep. We make a dwelling. We, made, we make a little house. And so that's just an example of that hardwiredness to be creative. And somewhere along the line, unfortunately, and I can say this as someone who who's spent almost 20 plus years of, of my career in, in education and in academia, we've drummed that out through our educational system.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're taught not to be creative. Right. So it often feels like, you know, into your lane and. Um, yeah.
1: Well, yeah. that lane piece, right. To to be a specialist. What's your area of focus? You have to decide on a lane. And and now what we know, especially as we are solidly in this fourth industrial revolution and as we prepare for the future of work, we will be much better off if we are polymaths and we have kind of PI pie shaped thinking, not just siloed deep specialization thinking.
0: Mm, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, So I'd love to sort of get into uh, a lot of the sort of concepts you have in your book and through your work and your talks and things like that. You know, throughout my career, I had generally earlier in my career had uh, this experience of like being in some meeting and having somebody in a position of power like turn to me as the creative and say, like, how do we solve this problem? What are we going to do? And and having this experience of literally freezing, right? Like, uh, this, this this wave of anxiety, my brain, like, s- completely ceasing all function, and, and you know, starting to sweat and, and all of that. And I realized a couple of things, one being that it, it didn't always happen. Like, there is a set of circumstances in which it would. And the second thing is that, like, a lot of people I talked to had the same experience. And so, mm-hmm. kind of, a lot of my, then later in my career, I have been really focused on how do we create an environment where nobody ever feels that. Right? Yes, And that's yeah. what I kind of saw in your book is like, here's some steps, like here's how to cultivate that environment so that you never are the deer in the headlights, you know, so that everybody well, on the team can really bring everything to the table. Uh, cause to me that is like now my, my, Career is an investment. And that to me is where the returns come from, when everybody yes. feels safe enough to bring everything to the table. So that's right.
1: Well, well, first of all, thank you for that feedback. That's high praise. That that's one of that was one of my goals in writing the creativity leap. And let me just pause here and just share with everyone well, how the heck is she defining creativity? That's I keep, wonderful. I keep yeah. dropping the word. Um so when you read the book, you, you learn very quickly that I I think about creativity as Toggling between wonder and rigor to mm. solve problems. Full
0: That's stop. great. That's great.
1: And I actually, I, right? And I actually go on a little bit lo- further, and I'll say it's it's about toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems and produce novel value, and that value can be financial value, cultural value, social value. But if we really just settle in on it's about toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems then we cease from those moments of the onus the responsibility of creativity being put on you to, as air quotes, the creative, to <laughs> yep. figure out the harder stuff. Or worse yet, in those siloed processes where, you know, manufacturing makes the stuff and... Um, Marketing and sales figures out the, the business model of it. And then design is kind of left to like slap lipstick on a pig and make it pretty, which is, which is totally a, a, a backwards way of approaching really anything. So if we think about talking between wonder and rigor to solve problems, then, then it actually means it would behoove us to have a, a diverse range of people as part of the problem solving process. I think about wonder as pausing awe, mm. audacity, asking big what-if blue sky questions. And I also think about rigor as discipline and deep focus and time on task. And what I often find is that we stop at the wonder piece sometimes when we think about creativity. We we mystify creativity and we think, oh, creativity is just doing whatever you feel like. It's these uh, talented souls who are really when we say that we're really talking about artists, not not creatives, because as, as you hear, I I believe all of us are, are creative. It's just about exercising that creati- creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, it we we stop at the wonder piece as if uh, you know creativity is is just about pulling something randomly out of your armpit and ta da, right? But one of the reasons I'm beginning to think that that we put the onus of create of creati- creative work on people who have been trained in design, people who have been trained in art, uh, is because we really realize creativity is hard work because it really digs into process versus solution. It's open to multiple possible ways of approaching a conundrum. And that is not an easy black and white fix. That requires us to, as Laura Linney, the actress, um, she was interviewed on Jesse Hempel's Hello Monday. She talks about how as an actor, there's always a moment in a live rehearsal for a live theatrical production process where everything starts out rosy and then they hit a wall. And she said, we have to sit with the discomfort of the ambiguity of the process. So if we think about toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems, problems, then we need the folks with the training and the skill set in that beautiful left brain, more aptitude of finance and, 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 and mathematics and accounting. But you know, to be an incredible mathematician, scientist, engineer, you have to incorporate an incredible amount of wonder and, of and all those elements of creativity, right? So- um, enough of that, you know, looking to the only one person in the room to deal with, with the, the harder ambiguous work of a creative process, it behooves all of us to contribute to that.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. Especially that quote of, of sitting with discomfort, right? Like I think that the tolerance for ambiguity, the tolerance for the, the uncomfortableness of not knowing, uh, not just not knowing the answer, but are we, like not knowing if we're going to even have an outcome here. It's okay right. because we can sort of fall back on the craft and the rigor and things like that to yes. get us through those moments. I think, but um, yes. I, find that, I just find that so interesting that that is a quality that can be taught really.
1: Yes. it's It's a quality that can be taught. It's a quality that can be cultivated and exercised. And if you, You know, if if you've been trained in design, uh, then you you are very you become you you are taught to be comfortable with a few things. You you get taught to be comfortable with the fuzzy front end of problem definition. You know, have we even are we even is this the right way that we should be framing this design challenge? Right. So a lot of time is spent investigating that. You're also taught and trained in design pedagogy to. Uh, be open to feedback, to shift and pivot. And it's called the crit. And we have that uh, in the arts as well Um, and works in progress, right? We have all of this nomenclature that really points to cultivating an aptitude to be open to the pivot, to the revision and to the build versus, and I know this because when I was a professor, I taught business students, engineering students and design students, and business students, God bless them, were consistently the worst at receiving feedback. Because, mm-hmm. and I, I can't blame them because they're, they're, the, the business pedagogy is about, I need the answer yesterday, right? right. <laughs> what is the answer? What is the solution? And, and to understand that when you really get out there and you're dealing with markets, which are made up of humans and therefore are inconsistent and unpredictable. You would be better off by figuring out multiple possible future scenarios, right? So um, that, that absolutely is something that we can cultivate and that we can exercise. And that's something that I, 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 I try to share in the Creativity Leap. And as, as you probably saw, each chapter ends with um, a Creativity Leap tip. So for an organization, for an individual to start to put some of these ideas into motion to practice them.
0: Yeah, they were sort of uh, almost exercises. Go off and try this or write something about this. I really, I really appreciated that. Let's take a little break, uh, and we'll come right back with some more questions. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Pingdom. While you've been listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website had gone down? Would you know if your customers couldn't click the buy now button or access any of your content? You might stumble across the problem by luck, but that's no good. You totally need a system. You need something to tell you when everything is running smoothly on your site. And more importantly, when it's not. You need Pingdom. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month. That's more than 400,000 Outages every single day. Pingdom helps you keep your sites and the sites that you love online. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company, you need alerts uh, about any critical website issue. They'll let you customize how you're alerted depending on the severity of the outage. Plus, they'll track and analyze your website's load time so you can see what's affecting the user experience. If you have a site of any size, you need Pingdom. And Pingdom has a no fuss approach to getting started. All they need is your URL uh, so that you can monitor it and they'll take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now. That's pingdom.com slash RelayFM. And you get a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. And then when you do sign up, use the code presentable at checkout and they'll take 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and RelayFM. In the book, you have a framework around the three eyes: the improv, the inquiry, and the intuition. I was wondering if you could talk about each one and how they kind of weave together uh, into uh, uh, insight. I guess is is where we yes. where we want to land, right?
1: That's right. I realized it wasn't going to be enough. It wasn't going to be sufficient for me to just recommend to people, oh, toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems and that's all you'll be more creative. <laughs> it would be helpful for me to identify modalities to start to work through in order to exercise creativity. And those, those I landed on three, and those are the three eyes. So inquiry is about curiosity, it's about asking new and different and better questions. And I was really influenced by the work of Warren Berger. Who wrote a more beautiful question? Mm. And his next book was *The Book of Beautiful Questions*. Uh, and and what real the one of the lines in his book that really stood out to me was, was when he wrote that asking questions is a way of thinking. And how many of us have been in meetings, have been in learning environments where, and I, I remember especially and still do when I facilitate, if I ask, "So, are there any questions?" And there's that awkward silence, right and and you can actually tell a lot more about a person by the quality of the questions that they ask even more than the answers that they they go rambling about so so really in our learning environments, encouraging question asking is is critical and then in our work environments, having leaders that are a bit more transparent that share the more self-reflexive questions that they're asking of themselves, um, encouraging questions from the team, and not landing in a punitive place when people pose a question. So that's inquiry. Improvisation really was as, as an, extension, an extension of all the doctoral studies I did um, when I was learning how the Ritz-Carlton Hotel delivers delightful experiences for their guests. And I ended up using a heuristic From Frank Barrett, um, seven principles of jazz music that we can overlay on organizations. And I combine that with chaotic systems thinking and service design. And improvisation is something that people are really intimidated by. I mean, if you think about what actors on Saturday Night Live do or what incredible rappers riff off of or or jazz musicians do, it's hard. I, I can't do that, right? But on the other hand, if you think about your day, you can probably pinpoint a minimum of three things you've already hacked to get your to get through your morning, to get through your afternoon, to support your spouse, to help your kids, to interact with a client. Right now I have a ring light on and it's it's probably been overused through this time of the COVID quarantine. And so I have masking tape that is is tacked down to make sure that it stays. At the proper uh, light illumination, so improvisation is really about being adaptive. It's about being hyper rooted in the present, so that you can say yes and, and not yeah, but we tried that seven years ago and it didn't work, or flat out no. Improv is always about the build, and mm. and it helps you to better anticipate what's next, not by um, holding on to what you want to say next, but really receiving. Um, what people are giving to you in the moment. When when um, neuroscientists who are studying uh, uh, the neuroscience of, of creativity, when they map the brainwaves of rappers or jazz musicians, it's incredible how dynamic the neurosynapses are as they are in the moment riffing and building on ideas and even building on what's being um, offered to them. And then and then and then you know passing on something next. And then intuition. Intuition is about pattern recognition. And I landed on intuition really because I, I'm a bit of a nerd and I was uh I I, I when I was a professor, I created something called the Strategic Design MBA Program, and it was an executive MBA program that integrated design thinking to how people were learning strategy, leadership, financial operations, and my professional network started to extend to startup leaders. And I started observing that whenever successful, well, successful folks in general, but startup leaders, when they would be telling their origin story, there was always this moment when they would say things like, yeah, something told me not to do the deal or something told me to work with her and not him even though her pedigree wasn't as sniffy. And I thought, what's that something? And I thought I think it's intuition. But we don't touch intuition in MBA programs, we don't talk about intuition in right. medical school, law school, right. right? But it's something that successful people reference. And so I did I I did a miniature ethnography on intuitive leadership and I observed how choreographers uh chefs, DJs, and uh first responders uh in my view recognize patterns in order to problem solve. And so for dancers especially, that's when I saw the incredible amount of discipline, but not enough to it wasn't enough just to, to have discipline when you're on the stage because we all have been at performances where um the the artists are technically proficient but it doesn't touch you in your heart. Um there's something else there, and it was actually through that, my through my miniature ethnography on intuitive leadership, that I landed on wonder and rigor. So, as you're hearing in my answer, I didn't land on this in a in a linear fashion. It was really through my own curiosity by by following the breadcrumbs of really trying to figure out how could I unpack creativity. In an accessible way, that I landed on the
0: three eyes. Got it. Got it. That's super useful. I uh, I think, and it's interesting. There, there's a thread running through your description of all of that around how there can be external forces in boxing us in from from practicing those things, like you mentioned, sort of punitive actions for asking the, the difficult question or. Um, you know, not receiving what we're giving in a, in, in that improv sense, but instead like we don't do that here or we've tried that and it doesn't work. Right. And I think most people will feel those scenarios very common, right? Oh yeah. Uh, And and so I'm wondering how much of it is internally motivated for our pursuit of, of creativity and how much of it really is us pushing against the externally imposed limits that we might face in our work or other parts of our life.
1: I love that question and also I love that you started your question with I wonder <laughs> because <laughs> the, the, there's literally nothing bad that follows the phrase I wonder. Um I love your question because you're you're pointing out a, a truth that over time we start to put those limitations and constraints on ourselves. Right. It's um really unfortunate because as younger people, as, as children, as, as in our even in our older but naive 20s, we don't realize yet what we're not supposed to do, what we can't try, what we shouldn't try. And it's through a culture that doesn't value mistakes or doesn't understand the mistakes are the only way we're going to learn that um, we get these external messages that you have to hone in on what's safe. And I, I, you know, I share it in in my book that I, I, to this day, I believe one of one of the greatest gifts my parents gave me was when I was a college student. I was a sophomore, and I had to declare a major. I really wanted to please them. I didn't want to mess up. I wanted to make sure I got a great job out of a very wonderful and expensive college education. And I called home crying. First world problems. <laughs> and I said, you know, I I don't know what I should major in. And they said, well, what are you interested in? And I started apologetically going through everything I was failing and didn't turn me on and thought I thought it was boring. They said, What are you interested in? And I apologetically started to share, about how I really love this new anthropology class I was taking, love these Africana studies courses I was taking, how multidisciplinary they were. And almost at the same time, my parents said, that's what you should study. And I was like, wait, so you'd be okay if I maybe even did a double major in that? And they were like, yeah. And my father said, if you follow your heart, you will, if you study what you love, you'll have to turn down opportunities. Mm-hmm. Now, I just want to contextualize this. I'm African-American. I come from a culture where education is everything. And education is is the means to the end of access and exposure, and I was in college in the late '80s and early '90s, and so I was in college at a time where, like, study study computers like that, like that was supposed to be like the yep. ticket, right? Or become a lawyer, become a doctor, and you know, I grew up in a at a solidly blue collar slash lower middle class community. I grew up on a block with cops and nurses and. Um, you know, my dad was a pharmaceutical sales rep. My mom stayed at home with us until we were teens and she became a a secretary and executive assistant at a large pharma company. And to have, to come from that environment and to have parents who didn't come from wealth to give me that liberation and that freedom to follow my heart, like I can't emphasize enough how phenomenal that was. Mm. And I have proceeded from there, uh, sometimes much to their confusion, like, why is she doing this now? Why is she le- like leaving this 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 seemingly great uh, opportunity? But really, it was that permission yeah. to follow my heart, which I think if more of us were equipped with that, and some of us get to that in middle age, we'd be a lot better off.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it also sounds like you could uh, you could think of that as a gift we could give each other in our teams and our work and, and that yes. sort of thing, right? That sort of that. permission of um, there won't be re- uh, incrimination for whatever you come up with, whatever you try. It's really interesting.
1: I I love what you just said about giving the gift to our teams of of encouraging each other to do you because we actually bring much more productive energy to our work when we do that.
0: Let's um take a little break and we'll talk more about teams when we come back. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by The Inside Track. Hey, if you're looking for a new show to listen to, try to you should check out The Inside Track. Uh, it's a podcast from Microsoft with a host, Carrie LaBelle, who interviews industry experts, insiders, and analysts from the automotive industry, covering long-term trends uh, around how people have different expectations for their cars and the effects of technology and the industry strategies that they're trying to respond. Super interesting. They have a bunch of segments in every show, like how, how are Artificial intelligence is being used in automotive manufacturing or what's happening with connected vehicles and how they're using cloud simulations, uh, intelligent infrastructure, loads of stuff. They've got guests uh, from big auto manufacturers and, and technology platforms uh, or the companies that develop Technology platforms for the automotive industry—super, super interesting. I was just listening to an episode about how the attitudes are really shifting over the past decade in the automotive industry, where the manufacturers kind of always left the customer experience to the dealerships, like it's up to you, you take care of them. Uh, and how much that has changed, you know? We see uh, companies like Tesla selling direct and, and things like that—fundamental uh, shift in how they think about. The experience they have to create for the cars that they're making—super, super interesting. So go and listen to it. Just search for the Inside Track wherever you get your podcasts, or click the link in our show notes here. Thanks to the Inside Track and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. One of the fascinating parts of your work is talking a lot about uh, the community that and communing. Uh, as a way of expressing creativity. Uh you've already you've mentioned jazz a few times, um, and uh and I think the parallels there are really, really interesting. But also the concept of tribes and like how we both want the, the need a feeling of being a, included uh and part of a tribe. Um I would love to hear your thoughts on all of that.
1: Yeah, so tribes are essential. We we are kind of also hardwired as, as humans to be tribal, it, they, tribes give us connection. They help to root us in identity. They help us to forge our true North and, and kind of our, our, our life's navigational system. And over our lifetime, we can form attachment to multiple tribes. I think that's part of human development and identifying, uh, what makes you tick the challenge is that when we become only tribal, right, and we don't understand uh I think it's an African proverb which says that alone faster, together further. Mm. And so we have to, the best organizations realize that you know it's important to have affinity groups, it's important to have um whatever the organizational version of a tribe is and multiple variations, but Community consists of tribes. Community consists of interconnected tribes. and so ultimately it's it's really essential that le- we have leaders who understand how to allow people to have that affinity and that and that deep rootedness, but also encourage what Hirschbaum, who was the Hirschberg, excuse me, who was the head of design at Nissan, hmm. he called it creative abrasion. He understood that whenever. His design team was working on a design challenge for an automotive design. He would insist that people from sales and manufacturing and HR and finance also were part of the process because while abrasion and friction, which which is comes in the early stages of collaboration, while it's it's difficult, uh, friction and abrasion ultimately ends up in energy. Yeah. And so his thinking was, why not convert that energy into something positive? And, that, and that's really what can happen when we build community.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. Because I've always felt in product design, uh, where my background is, that having all the disciplines at the table is the only possible way that we can make something that will, you know, to, to sound a little more engineering, that will, that will fulfill all the requirements. Yes. Like how how can we the the people who are out there selling the product to customers and you know, the people that are doing partnerships with other firms, like of course they're gonna have a lot of input into what the thing should be.
1: Exactly. The the more diverse the inputs, the more innovative the output. Absolutely. And right? Because I I can't possibly dream up the, the sorts of questions that you would pose and vice versa. And questions are inputs into any system. And so we need a, a wide variety of those.
0: Mm, mm, that's great. Um, so, so the diversity of discipline, diversity of all sorts of f- factors, um, making up more creative teams or or, or or a safer space for that creativity and that friction. Uh, what other ways can we sort of develop that sense of community within our teams?
1: Well, it's it's also about kind of level setting. And one of the first things that has to happen or that we we quickly realize is going to need to happen when we start to collaborate and build teams is we have to unpack our jargon. (laughs) Sometimes we Uh. don't even realize that there is jargon and we have to sort of develop a lingua franca. We have to develop curiosity about other people's jargon. And that is one of the things that begins to level set and helps us to become better translators. A lot of the creative process is about boundary spanning because- when you are only satisfied by being in your lane um, or in your silo, you'll never really advance. You'll never uh, really understand um, what is additive about the way you do things. What what could be contributed to by others based on what you learn from others? So that jargon uh, breakdown is 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 really important. And also, uh, I was just talking to another group yesterday and I was talking about starting to to institute show and tells and show and tells from the perspective of kind of legacy uh, members of of an organization or institution and then newer folks. Because a lot of the resistance that we often find in kind of bureaucratic environments from the older folks or the folks who've been there forever is that they're, they are feeling not heard, they're feeling not seen. That's kind of the need that's not being met for them. Hmm. And so inviting to have a show and tell of what are the things that we tried 19 years ago and how similar are they to, to a problem that we're facing now um, is a really value-added uh, thing to do in, in a collaborative environment. And to invite junior level, and newer people who are not as senior but may have a lot of experience in the industry, might come from a different organization, to invite them also to do show-and-tells. You remember how excited you, I remember how excited I was in kindergarten and first grade whenever it was time to show-and-tell and and how I learned something new about uh, a buddy, a friend, um, someone I didn't know too well, and how much I loved to share a bit more about me. Uh, We still have that Kernel in ourselves, even as adults, and it goes miles in forging connection in teams.
0: Ah, that's great. That was something that we would do. So, so uh, I worked on a product called Typekit, and we had a team that was about forty uh, percent distributed all over the world, and then sixty percent here, uh, and the the dynamics there were very easily very easy to get into us and them. And we were working really hard to avoid that one. And so we would uh, three times a year, everybody would come together uh, and we'd have a week uh, of just us all being together. And we did a ton of work and product planning and prioritization, all that kind of stuff. Uh, But lots of fun uh, as well to build some community. But one of the things we always did was on the first day, everyone who had joined the company since the last one would get five minutes to get up in front of everybody and teach teach us all something about themselves. Love it, and preferably like not, nothing about technology, right? And yes. So And it was wonderful. I remember somebody being like, "I collect advent calendars, and let me show you why they're so cool." Right? And somebody else going on and on about like making uh, pizza in his backyard, and wow. and and it obviously humanized and things like that. But at this, but also, uh, it was a ritual that we always do. Yes. Did. And rituals, exactly. I think there's a lot uh there's something insanely human about ritual.
1: Yes. Rituals are different from routine because rituals are rooted in purpose. Rituals are rooted in meaning and I and I I'm fond of saying that creativity is about the business of meaning making. Without creative creative acts, we are just going through the motions. And because creativity is so much core to being hardwired to being human, that's so important to draw it from 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 everyone. So I I love that that your organization did that. And and what if, and this is a challenge I give to my clients: what if we didn't wait for the summer barbecue or the end of the year get together? What if we tried in smaller iterative stages to have those moments so that it happened twice a month, and it doesn't have to be a longer Drawn out thing, maybe it's for thirty minutes. I don't know, but yep. if you you make it part of of, of the muscle and the je ne sais quoi of who you are, it could it could really be leveraged.
0: You know, uh, we do this thing in the the firm I'm with now, where we start uh, a monthly meeting with a five minute meditation, and then we go around and everybody uh, names an emotion that they're they're showing up with, right? Wow. And and the, the interesting thing is. Not just the ritual, it's wonderful, it's incredibly effective. But also the like I remember personally, my immediate like, oh that makes me nervous. Like, ooh, yes. ooh, why is that? Like why am I nervous right. of, like why is it scary to do that? So um I think there's benefit in both, right?
1: Well, I think it's scary to do that because we show up to work and drag. <laughs> we don't we we do. <laughs> oh, I we love don't that. get we don't get to show up. It's like Nat's greatest hits. Best of, and I'm really good at, you know, but it's, but it's, uh, right. It's, it's that transparency which requires vulnerability. And of course, it's natural that we're going to be nervous about that initially. But as your team is trying to do, institute it as just part of the way you connect so that, so that when you offer up an idea that seems far fetched, you have connected on a much more meaningful level with your colleagues, um, you're more likely to do that. And who knows, that could be the thingamajig that just distinguishes you from your competitors.
0: That's the leap.
1: Exactly, that's the leap.
0: Yeah, 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 <laughs> that's great. That's great. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, Natalie. I'm wondering where people can you know, go deeper, learn more.
1: Sure, well, thank you for having me again. And if people wanna visit figure eight thinking.com. And I know you're, you'll have lots of links in, in your notes, yeah, yeah. but it's uh, the word figure, the number eight thinking. You'll find a lot of cool stuff. You can download a free sample chapter mm. of the Creativity Leap. I also offer a Wonder Rigor tip sheet, and I think we're going to share that in the show notes yep. as well. Um, but yeah, I'd love people to, to browse through the website, to stay in touch. And I'm always available for keynote speaking and Foresight Studio. So definitely keep in
0: touch. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for being on. Uh, I'll put links to everything that you've just described in the show notes. Uh, And um, honestly, great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. And that's another episode of Presentable.